לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamit, back in the United States, in Highland Park, New Jersey. Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation, Al Jimin, and my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Schechter, Day School, Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski, in New York City, Al Sheikh Chesed. It's great to see you. Great to be back in this continent. Had a wonderful time in Israel. but uh, and, and, and so now we're back to Baalotcha. I think they did it. I, mean, I wasn't there last Shabbat, so I was here this Shabbat. Uh, last Shabbat, Baalotcha is our Parsha, our amazing Parsha. Baalotcha starts off with the uh, a picture of the Nerot, the menorah, Baalotcha et Nerot el menorah. So lighting the candles, lighting the, the, the wicks of the menorah towards the center of the menorah, Ya'iru Shivat Nerot, a beautiful emblem, of course, the menorah, which uh, then gets depicted in a lot of ancient Israel. Uh, Israel, uh, a lot of coins, and of course, the most prominent uh, depiction of the ancient menorah on the Arch of Titus, right? You recall that? And uh, some comments. What's that? <laughs> pretty amazing. When you, like, you know, when I, when, I mean, I've seen a million pictures of the Arch of Titus, but when I was actually in Rome and saw the Arch of Titus and saw the, them stealing all, it made me mad. I want it back. Uh, yeah, well, it's somewhere. In the, I think it's in the Vatican. It's in the Vatican somewhere, you know. We'll have to. But, in hiding. Uh, so the menorah emerges, obviously, as a very important symbol. We could talk a lot about that. And we, we maybe we'll just take a, a note, a minute to talk about. Go ahead. It, it, is, it is an incredibly important symbol. And, um, you know, just, just to note, the menorah is a kind of a, a tree on on fire. And. And like the, the richness of the integration of symbols in Jewish literature, you know, frankly, um, it's it's like the the burning bush too, right? That the um, that the I, I'm going to take a stab and say something like, you know, the the tree of light was was like really present in the spiritual life of ancient Israel, and so the story of Moshe getting a message and a tree to light and the ritual. Uh, the ritual tree that they light and and the the haftarah for Hanukkah, which is it's actually haftarah for this too. The Bahaloticha is Zechariah with the image of the olive trees and like sending their pipes directly to a tree or uh, the olive trees send the pipes directly to the menorah and they fill up the menorah with oil. It's really quite um, it's quite stirring. So the menorah actually is the exact counterpoint to the burning bush, which is not consumed by fire. And here we have the instruction that the menorah in the temple or the mishkan had to be lit in the morning and the evening to keep it going. And so that underscores the great miracle of the burning bush, which kept going by, as it were, the fire of God. Right. And, and you know, the central punchline of the burning bush story is that it wasn't consumed. And uh, I, I remember, I recall interpretation that, that in this way, this, this does represent 
the divine presence that it's it's so powerful so powerful and yet um you know it has on the one hand the ability to completely obliterate and incinerate you and the other hand when contained within the community with contained within the structure of the the daily life and the ritual of torah uh it can be sustained in it and it uh and it doesn't go out that's then and call that's the of course the motto of the, the seminar i never knew i never understood why they chose that as the original model do you, do you well it makes more sense today because now we really hope it doesn't go out <laughs> Okay. Oh. But what I want to add here is something I think we were talking a lot about Levine before we started recording and the role that they had in, in, in Israelite society. And one of the things that we often overlook is that the menorah was only seen by the Kohanim. And the community had to take it on trust that the Kohanim kept it lit every morning and every evening because the average Israelite could not enter the Kodesh where the menorah was located. Yeah. And you know, there is this tension, as we were talking before we recorded, but we could talk a little bit now, between various roles that people have, both in the Torah and throughout Jewish history. And it's not always clear how Israelite society, and by extension Jewish society, should be organized. Whether things should be passed down from parent to child, and people go into the family business, or a more democratic view, where anyone could do whatever moves him or her to do. And what we have here with the menorah, the, this wonderful midrash that Rashi brings, who suggests that Aaron was upset after the 12, priests, uh, 12 princes brought their gifts because the Levites had no gift to bring. And God assures him that he'll have a better gift. He will light the menorah. And so, of course, Aaron is pacified. And, you know, we, we often lose sight of the fact that there are different roles for different people and they change throughout time. You know, Ben Summer, who teaches at the seminary, talks about the different voices in the Torah. And, you know, we have to pay attention that there are lots of different voices in the Torah and they speak to many different things. And as we go through our lives and go through the weekly parshiot, we hear different things as well. So I, I want to just uh, append to what you said which is that, that there there seems to be at least two different models. One is the 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 um, the family dynastic model, and then of course there's the 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 master student master disciple model. And I think and and maybe you know just take two seconds to discuss this. Judaism moved away from a dynastic model with the with the sole exception of the Kohanim, and by and large today. And maybe the sole exception of certain Hasidic dynasties, um, it's a master-disciple model that that you attain authority, leadership, and a dimension of prestige and um, and pedigree, yichus, not on the basis of who your parents were, but on the basis of who your teachers were. You know that in um, in in Hasidu, first of all, of course there were there were parent to child dynasties, and sometimes. Like in Lubavitch, parent to child-in-law, the, the the late the late Mashiach was the son-in-law of the previous Rebbe. But there's an expression in Hasidut that is really good. It's Yichus Atzmo. It's his own lineage, right? Um, it's not because your parent was was blah blah blah, or you're descend you're descended from this or that progenitor. It's your own um, your own uh, 
virtues, your own fitness. And on the one hand, I mean, like the idea at least is, is a good meritocracy as opposed to, you know, what we sometimes talk about nowadays in the United States, but um, whatever, there's, there's a combination. I mean, I think I, I, I like to observe that we all have, we all have two names, a, a first name, which uh, marks us as individuals and, and a last name, which marks us as part of a group. Um, and, and I, I kind of think that a healthy identity recognizes that you, that you are part of a family and, and that may for lots of people, just think of all the kinds of, the kinds of names that, you know, like Schechter uh, butcher or Schneider Taylor or, or Schuster shoemaker. Malamed <laughs> is a, uh, is a teacher like that. There are family businesses and the people find themselves, uh, find the meaning of their own lives because they are, um, uh, tied to those things. And I think that that's, I'm sure people can experience that as oppressive and confining and um, it can also be uh, stable and, and can give you a role in life and can, can give you uh, uh, economic security. And that's part of your identity. And also you're an individual and you're, you know, you're unique. And, and I think that, you know, all of us, none of us come from rabbinic families. None of us are likely to leave behind, you know, rabbinic children, but we made the choices that, sort of our f- fullest for ourselves. Exactly. And that's, that's uh, there's something to be said for that in the sense, as far as Torah and Jewish leadership is concerned, that it's available. It's available. The Keter Torah is available to everyone. That's, that's a, a, a Keter Kuna and Keter Malchut are not available to everyone. But the Keter Torah is L'chol Olam. It's for everyone who wants it. Okay, so let's choose among the different topics in our, in our Parsha, we have Pesach Sheni. You want to spend a second and talk about Pesach Sheni, uh, that that uh, uh, the uh, the commandment that if you miss the first Pesach, you got you got a second chance. You can't blow it off. Exactly. You can't you can't miss it because you you know you had uh, you had tickets to the Caribbean or something like that. If you if you are if you are too far off, or you are tame, you're ritually impure. And I mean, Passover in the Torah is like the covenantal ritual. If you just choose not to participate in it, you get karet. It's, it's one of the only mitzvot that, for which the penalty of karet, uh, which in the rabbis, it means like some sort of punishment from heaven. God will get you short life. But in the Torah, it seems to mean something like you're, you're thrown out of the people. Um, you're thrown out of the Jewish people. If you just blow off Pesach, karet. It's one of the, it's one of the very few positive mitzvot. Typically, karet comes for violating a prohibition, but this is failure to do an active mitzvah, you're out. But if you were uh, ritually impure and you simply could not go to the temple to celebrate Passover, or you, you know, were midinat hayam, you were, you were, you know, selling uh, that Eretz Yisrael olive oil off in Italy or whatever, and you just, like, you could not make it, um, you get a second chance. So when, when things are beyond your control, we really, really, really want everyone to participate in the communal covenantal ritual. So if you just can't, we'll, we'll try to find a, a second chance mechanism. So this establishes the Israelite identity, that you have to do it in order to belong to the people. And it, in a sense, highlights another covenantal ritual, which is done by the person unconsciously or subconsciously, and that's milah, circumcision, 
where the eight-day-old baby is unaware of what's happening to him. That's one way of joining the community. But eating the Korban Pesach is the adult version of that ceremony of identification. And it's instructive that in the context of our Parsha, that people come to Moses feeling bad that they could not offer the Korban Pesach because that need to identify with the people was so strong. And there's a lesson, I suppose, for the Jewish community today that you know, part of being Jewish requires positive validation. It can't just be something that you're born into. You have to do something to maintain your connection. Right, and, and, and just this to me is huge. What you just said is huge because yes. um, we are all we are all uh, you know. Obviously, it's, it's no surprise to the three of us. It's no surprise to anybody who might be uh, tuning in here. The 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 throngs, the cast of thousands, but um, the you know the difference between um, ascribed identity and chosen identity. Um, is, is huge. It's in American Jewish life. It's just playing more and more and more. Fewer, fewer, fewer things are, that's just what you are. And more and more and more things are, I choose to identify with, with X or Y or Z. And those things might be, you know, like various kinds of, you know, uh, identities that people, that people have. I don't think that for our grandparents, being Jewish was a choice in any reasonable way right like they were they were yiddish speaking people from eastern europe they what were they going to be were they going to be something else they're going to be something else um and even if they did nothing as, as a as a friend of mine said at his mother's funeral um she didn't practice judaism she didn't have to practice she was very good at it like she wasn't <laughs> she wasn't observant but she was like utterly jewish and and that's obviously just not true for people who are born in America and several generations on. And so the, the, the identification thing isn't, has to be more active than it once was, which is now one just last asterisk though on this point. It, it is interesting to me that by far the two most observed things remain in American Jewish life, Passover and circumcision. Like, these things were so old, they're so deep that people find it harder to walk away from. So and 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 to reiterate what you said, Barry, about about Passover as a an adult uh, affirmation, an adult ritualized or reenactment of a, of the covenant. Um, obviously, you know the only surgery performed on the animal, which of a kind of finite uh, form, but uh, they're both blood rituals, in other words, uh, one uh, that's done on an annual basis, and and so both of them are are critical. In the, in the life of the community. Of course, circumcision only on the male population, but the Corbin Pesach for, for the entire population. I think that that's important. Why don't we move to, to um, another theme in this Parsha. We, we didn't really talk about it before, but, but there's a lot of movement here. This movement, that, uh, I'm struck by the, 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 the text that says, it was in the second year, second month, 20th day of the month, the cloud goes up, and so the children of Israel now move. And, and this is the first time that we see movement here. And of course, Bamidbar is all about move, movement from place to place. You know, we're, back in Vayikra, we were, we were really stationary. Um, and moving, you know, the, the, this book gives us this sense that, that movement will uh, entail 
all sorts of challenges, uh, geographical, environmental, um, survival challenges, and also political challenges that, that will come, of course, uh, in future Parshas. But um, uh, one of the, and, and, and of course, the, um, uh, the central verse of movement uh, is Vahib bin Soharon as the ark moved. Barry, I just want to, we, we talked about this, we had, uh, we did a little bit of this uh, for my synagogue last night. Uh, your point on the ark as the portable Sinai, uh, or, or, or taking Sinai with you, and, and if you could just, just highlight that for a second. Uh, for us, so the two verses by he bin so I wrote by Yomer and Moshe. When the ark is in motion, God call, uh, we call to God to arise and to scatter our enemies. And then when the ark is at rest, we ask that God rest with us as well. And the imagery in the Torah is military imagery. And you know, I was thinking of that quite a perplexing line in Najashir, God described as an Ishmael Chama, man of war. But for us, we recite these two verses in the Torah service, because for us, the Ark represents the Torah, not the presence of God that goes out to war and comes back from war, but God's teaching. And there are two foci of, for ancient Israel, Jerusalem, with the Beit HaMikdash, which was stationary, and Sinai, which is where we receive the Torah, at least in the rabbinic imagination. Certainly there is a revelation of God. And that image of Sinai is something portable. And the portability is represented by the Ark and the community that we saw so carefully described in the earlier portions of the Midbar, where the camp is in motion, and the ark representing God's presence in the community is in the center of the community so that God goes with the people wherever they go. It's not just the cloud that's leading the people, but the ark in the center of the community, which represents the presence of God. Right. And so and what we've done, you know, in the synagogues, we've, we've kind of mapped out that story in the synagogue, both in architecture and also the, the, in, in worship that, that, a person comes to synagogue and comes into the desert uh, and, and is playing a role that they are um, they're finding their way back to the ancient story by being present uh, and, and saying these, these and other verses. Matovu Yaakov is you know, a classic example of that it will occur later on in Parshat Balak, where uh, you, know, you enter the synagogue, you're really entering into the world of the desert. Um, and, and so this, this uh, dynamic of leadership uh, plays itself out in, in, in the Parsha. Uh, certainly the people uh, who have not stopped complaining since uh, they left Egypt uh, are complaining again. Um, and uh, they, they miss, don't you love this verse? Zacharnu et adaga asher We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt for free. Eta kishuim veta avatichim. The... It was the California roll, they were having sushi. <laughs> yeah, the squash and the watermelon. Veta chatsir, veta betzalim, veta shumim. Right, the onion, the fragrant 
you know, aromatic vegetables, the garlic, the onions, etc. Nafshenu yibesha, our soul is dried up, you know, a little garlic, you know, you need a little garlic in your life, right? Otherwise your soul will be dried up, yeah. Uh, what do we do with that? And and then you know, you know for sure <laughs> that, that this is like an authentic, you know, from the source of Judaism. Because not only are they complaining, they're complaining about the food. Like that's just the most Jewish thing that ever was. <laughs> I don't blame them. You know, I mean, I I have a lot of empathy for our our Israelite ancestors because they have to live off of manna and quail, right? There's not much. Well, they're going to get some that. quail. They're going to get some quail. But it is interesting. Sure. But the the um, I think one of the ways that this story works in a very powerful literary way, um, they're in the desert, and our, and our very souls, our very lives are desiccated and dried out. And we remember there was fish in that river, that biggest river in the world. And, and there was watermelon and, and squash or cucumbers and just the moisture of, the food. Those are they're water they're water vegetables they're they're, yes, they're watermelon you know squash the, the moisture of the food you can hear exactly can hear exactly them. okay um, so talk about the seventy elders and then what's going so, on so, there. So, so this is a, a, a really uh, interesting and intense passage because Moses um, uh, uh, says um, to God. Just kill me now, right? I've had it with these people. I cannot do this anymore. And there's a really interesting kind of gender bend of, of this passage a little bit because he is the nursing father. Um, it's, uh, you told me to carry this people in your bosom, as the nurse, masculine uh, named nurse, um, carries the, the, the sucking child. Moses is like the, 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 the nursing parent, the, 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 the breast, so to speak. Um, and he doesn't, he can't really do that or he can't do it successfully, or perhaps I mean, you could, you could play with this in some sort of interpretive or homiletical way. Um, the, the frustration of the male who cannot in fact be the mother and, and God, you're going to, you're going to give them God has promised. I'm going to give them meat. Come on. There's hundreds of thousands of these people. And God gets mad at him because God says, what, you don't think I can do it. Um, God isn't powerful enough to do that. So there's a, a little bit of a, of a conflict between God and Moshe. And, and Moshe finally says, you know, just kill me now. I can't, I can't take this terrible job anymore. God says, tell you what, I'm going to do something. I'm going to really do something special for you. Um, uh, gather me up 70 elders. It's a little confusing because they're, if there are 12 tribes, and you need the same amount from each, you're going to get 72 elders, which maybe is maybe is what happens as far as the, it's like about 70, gather me up about 70 elders, um, or it's 70 specific, and, and two of the, there are two who don't show up, or um, named Eldad and Medad, and either they are um, numbers 71 and 72, or they're numbers 69 and 70, and they're 68, who show up and two refuse to show up. Um, and they, they seem to kind of, Eldad and Medad seem to kind of avoid the call to prophecy, but but it finds them anyway. They, they like Jonah, perhaps, Jonah, Jonah ben Amitai, they perhaps like are trying to avoid it, but it doesn't work. God finds them anyway. And, um, and so these folks have a, 
moment of prophecy. And, and that's like, I, I guess it's this great demonstration to the rest of the people. Really, the Lord is here. Um, and, and, you know, it's not just Moses, you know, leading us on his own, on his own uh, recognizance or whatever. God, God is really here. Um, and so that seems to do at least in this temporary moment, even though they don't keep prophesying, that seems to take the burden off of Moses. And then there's this great thing that happens, which is, is so, so wonderful. Um, after Eldad and Medad, everybody gets this momentary, you know, ecstasy of prophecy, but Eldad and Medad, they, they keep it, they keep going. And they're doing it off in the camp, not even in the, in the central tent of meeting or something. And Joshua says to Moses, you gotta, you gotta arrest these guys. They're, they're a challenge to your leadership. And Moses says, no, 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 don't you understand? Wouldn't it be great if all of the Lord's people were prophets? This is what we're really headed for. It's not that I'm the boss and you guys are my flock. Let me quote um, it. Right? What a, what a, what a, I want everybody to be have this close relationship with God. And that, that's to me, strikes me as a spectacular piece of mosaic leadership. It's, it's like, yeah, we have a hierarchy. Yeah, I speak to God and you guys listen. And I'm really finding this job hard and I'm, I'm tired of that. Um, but what we're aiming for ultimately on a, on a level of like religious, uh, what, what am I training you guys for? What do I want you to do? I ultimately want everybody to have some of this inspiration. So this points back in part to our earlier conversation because the first being to help Moshe here is God. So that suggests a vertical relationship. When Moshe gathers the 70 elders, that's a horizontal relationship. That's an elite community about him. But what Moses is after, in a sense, is absolute democracy, where everyone in the community has the same power that Moshe does. And so we would end up with the B'nai Yisrael that is 600,000 Moshe's, in a sense, rather than what Joshua is trying to protect, which is an elite community with Moshe on top. Right? He sees it as a threat, and Moses sees it as a great blessing. Right. So Moses, I mean, this, this goes to his humility. He's not threatened. He's not threatened by, by anybody else having it. And perhaps, you know, it, it's his awareness that, that everyone is entitled to it, that everyone has a right to it, and that, that, um, and that the more of God's presence, maybe it's a, you know, his deep intuition into the nature of God, which is that, that God will manifest God's presence to everyone differently, and that as much of that that takes place within the community um, is, is simply... Uh, wonderful it's it's beyond uh, it it makes the community the godly community uh the more you know how, the, you know how, how, how wonderful this is um i just and, happened to watch a terrible it was, it was terrible because of the content not because of the quality of the show uh on um i forget one of the streaming services netflix or something like that there was a uh, a uh documentary about the fundamentalist Mormons, the fundamentalist LDS, and, and the this um, dictator Warren Jeffs, who who ultimately went to jail because of uh, gross, gross, gross sexual improprieties with with teenage girls. Um, but the deal was in the fundamentalist LDS, and this is true about LDS generally, that people are thought to have leaders are thought to have prophecy. But in the fundamentalist LDS, 
the this this Jeffs and the, these are the polygamists. Um, he was the prophet, and he had the word. And when people like such as fourteen-year-old girls would tell him, "I don't want to get married to this guy" or whatever, um, he would say, "Well, you know, do you think that you know more than the prophet?" And he would use that that ostensible prophecy, which is obviously, uh, you know, morally reprehensible in lots of ways, but one of the ways it was morally reprehensible was he used it to undermine other people's experience of their own lives. And he used it to say, I know, and you guys don't know. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's always going to be a temptation in, in a religion that is based on knowledge. Like, you know, if, if you, if you, whatever, if you go to, to, you know, your halachic posek, because I don't know how to behave. And the posek says, listen, I, I do know how to behave and I'll tell you what to do. That can happen in a way, which is undermining of people's own autonomy and undermining of their own dignity and their own control of their own lives. Um, and so there's always a temptation. And what Moses is so great about here is ultimately, I don't want to, I don't want to tell you, I know, and you don't know. I want to tell you, I know, and I'm showing you the way that you can also know. Interesting. So we, were, we would be remiss if we didn't uh, conclude with the story of Miriam and Aharon and Moshe. I mean, that, that's really the, the coda to this Parsha. Uh, it says, Miriam they, they speak about Moses, that is Miriam and Aaron speak, about the Kushite woman, who she is, what she is, and what are they saying? So I'm, I'm going to turn to, uh, I'm going to flip a coin here. Okay, Jeremy, you win. Go ahead. I win, huh? Talk about her. So, so this is tremendously interesting. There's, there's lots of tremendously interesting midrash. I, I think that the contemporary reader hears, contemporary American reader, hears that they complain about the, the Ethiopian woman. It, it sounds like he had a black wife and they didn't like it. It sounds like there's a racism uh, thing going on here. And so I've heard lots of contemporary Americans um, say that, that Miriam and Aaron get a rebuke because they're of a kind of in, implicit or not implicit, explicit racism against Moses's Kushite wife. Well, I, I don't want to, um, and, and then God comes out in a whirlwind and, Miriam is stricken with leprosy, and and Aaron says, "Moses, we've got to do something." And Moses prays, and she's healed, and and Miriam is, uh, you know, her suffering is 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 told with ultimately a story of divine healing. The the so the the aladota kushita sherlakah, the kushite wife, the Ethiopian wife that he took. Like I said, so it's I think a common read in American life to to read it. He should not have married the black woman. What's interesting to me is, in addition to that reading, which is which is cogent, uh, is that that the classical midrash has a kind of a different take on it, which is that Moses married another woman, and then uh, was kind of celibate because he was with God all the time. He was not doing his husbandly duties to the poor Ethiopian woman that he had just married, and so Aaron and Miriam according to the Midrash, which didn't know that it was supposed to be embarrassed about racism or whatever, the Midrash says the problem wasn't, wasn't that he married her, it was that he married her and then uh, was apart from her. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a tremendously, and you'll, you'll see that one in Rashi. There's, there's, another, there's another couple of possible interpretations, but I like the fact that the sages and, and Rashi, as he quotes, 
it's not like they're apologizing for the racist. They didn't know it was racist. <laughs> maybe, maybe you know, the race wasn't a concept for them. I don't think race was a concept in the Bible in general, but that's a longer conversation for our time. Barry, you want to weigh in on this one? Yeah, I, I would draw our attention to Moses being described as Ishanav Ma'od. He is an exceedingly humble person, which provided a nice segue from your earlier comment about Moses' humility. And what we have here is a, kind of an example of... Uh, the rabbinic understanding of the phrase uh, when you grab too much, you lose everything. So Miriam and Aaron want to be as important in God's eyes as Moshe. And they lose for that thought. Moses, of course, the way that God describes it is special because God speaks to him face to face, whatever that means with an unformed being and a human being in direct contact, and Mo and Miriam and Aaron are only approach, only receive uh, God's word through dreams and riddles. Miriam and Aaron want more, and Miriam is stricken as a result. Moses, who apparently doesn't want anything, is given what everyone wants, and it's a striking image, I think, of how we're supposed to approach God. Moses is a servant of God. He does what God wants him to do, I think, most of the time. I think that's our understanding of his role in the Torah. At least in this story, Miriam and Aaron want to be more than a servant of God. They want to be honored for being so close to God. They want to be set apart from the community um, rather than belong to part of the community. When you, I just wanted to have one other thought that came to me when you were talking about Moses nursing the community like, uh, well, like, like a nurse, it struck me that what we have here is an adumbration of Moses and God in the marriage relationship. And so it's striking that Moses is the nurser because then he obviously has a female form, but then it invites us to speculate that God is his husband. And to follow Jeremy, your midrash about uh, Aaron and Miriam being concerned for Moses's relationship with his wife, in a sense, perhaps he's replaced his human wife with God, and that is not good. It's so fascinating. You know, there, there's a. Uh, I taught this earlier in a class. Uh, uh, these um, couples in Israel, one who's super religious and one who's not, and. In, they're being interviewed, and, and the woman says, <laughs> There's a third person in our marriage, God. You know? And she says, I had to deal with it. I love my husband. My husband became super religious, and there's another, there's another person in the marriage. <laughs> it's classic. Well, we've, we've come well, to the You know, here we have to add that the third person is important in the creation of the next generation, right? Because we say, following the rabbis, that God is a partner with the father and the mother in the creation of the child. But in the marriage, it could be a problem. That's right. What a lovely way to conclude this, uh, this Parsha, a very interesting story. And this was a great conversation. Another beautiful edition of Parsha Talk. Uh, I want to thank all of our listeners and, and viewers. Hey, share this to, with people. We want to grow this community of ideas right? beyond 250. Uh, thank you, Mitch Mernick, for putting us on the 
Ramah website, Camp Ramah is starting up any day now, right? Uh, Rabbi Kalmanovsky, you got... I'm going I'm going tomorrow to take, uh, to take my son Shai up to camp tomorrow. Okay, to the staff, we're going up. Have a wonderful summer. It's unbelievable that, that we're already here. And anyway, we'll be back next week. So for everyone, Shabbat Shalom, and we'll see you next week on a, another edition of Parchment Talk. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. שלוש אפים